0: Thanks for joining me here on Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm an experienced registered yoga teacher with over 15 years of teaching experience, a certified personal trainer, and an entrepreneur. My mission is this, to help you develop into a purpose-driven, confident yoga teacher, one who truly understands anatomy and how to share it clearly and confidently so that you can help your students learn and as a result, grow your impact and connection. I strongly support and value the uniqueness of all individuals and provide a safe community where diversity is embraced. Through my mentorship and signature program called the Blueprint Learning Program, I help yoga teachers build their skills in the area of learning anatomy and along with that, help them learn important business skills and personal development ways of being that will transform them into purpose-driven teachers who make a big impact. On the podcast here, you'll get a blend of both anatomy learning, stories from teachers, interviews with others in the field, and a dose of personal development. For more information and to get on the wait list for any of my programs, see my website, barebonesyoga.com. Hello and welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 87. So I want to start out by thanking a listener who left a review on iTunes. The name associated with the review was Yoga Lastics. And this person wrote, I'm so happy I found this resource. Thank you for sharing your wisdom. So I want to say thank you to Yoga Yogalastics for listening. And um, if you uh, have any questions, always feel free to DM me. Um, of course, this goes for any listeners. I check iTunes every once in a while. And it's always kind of cool to see when someone leaves some thoughts and feedback about it. Um, because it's just, you know, I'm standing here kind of feeling on some level like, like I'm speaking to myself, <laughs> so it's always nice to, to find out, you know, your thoughts and comments about the episode, so feel free to leave a review uh, on iTunes about anything, even if it's a question, that's always something you can leave as well, and I'll respond to it via the podcast, so um, I'm recording this one today on July 27th. Um, which seems kind of unbelievable that we're already, you know, almost at August 1st here. It's been a lot going on. And at the same time, there's been kind of this feeling like everything is on hold. So I, if you can relate to that, I, I'm totally with you there. Um, I actually, on a personal note, wanted to just share something kind of cute with you. Over the weekend, I got a beta fish and i think that's how you pronounce it it's b-e-t-t-a and i don't know if any of you have ever had a beta fish before if you have had one i'd love to know any of your impressions about them because i'm learning so much about beta fish because every time he does something i'm going on google and googling you know why are they at the bottom of the tank why are they hiding in their little sculptures that you put in the in the tank and it's really quite amazing. I had a yellow lab for 15 and a half years. Uh, Her name was Bailey Rose, and I am really a dog person. However, when I moved into my apartment in the back bay five years ago, uh, it's probably the only apartment building on the street that doesn't allow dogs. So I don't know why I waited this long to get a fish so I could at least feel like (laughs) I have a pet. And I will tell you, it is absolutely amazing to me. uh, And it In a bunch of articles online, they do talk about how smart these fish are. Um, He will eat from my fingers when I drop the pellets in. If I just hold the pellet between my fingers, he'll take it right out of my fingers. And um, he totally tracks my face and my voice, my finger. Um, It's really pretty unbelievable how responsive this fish is. So um, yeah, that's just kind of a personal note. And I named him Gus. Uh, I'm a huge um, fan of Walt Disney movies. And if you remember in Cinderella, there was a mouse and his name was Gus and they would call him Gus Gus. So anyway, that's why I uh, I named him Gus after the little mouse in the Cinderella uh, original movie. So anyway, I just thought I would share that, share that with you. So um, I wanted to also talk about, I know I just said, it seems like things are kind of moving fast and at the same time moving slow. You know, certainly the days on the calendar are moving along. Um, If, however, you haven't had your hair cut since March. I know when I watch the nighttime TV shows, Jimmy Fallon and Stephen Colbert, you know, their hair is so long. My boyfriend's hair is very long. I've had one haircut since things reopened. Anyway, I know that there's kind of a lot uh, of mixed feelings about where things are at. And depending on where you live in the world, it could be very different. If you live somewhere in Europe, you may be you know, kind of in a different phase of uh, the COVID virus um, and its incidence rate versus if you live in the united states if you live in a state like me in massachusetts it can be a different experience than if you live in arizona or florida so everybody's perception and reality i should really say everybody's reality is going to be shaped in part by where they live and i wanted to talk about it just a little bit because in terms of the impact on the yoga industry i know here in massachusetts over the past two weeks both studios that I uh, taught at for over 10 years, both decided to close their brick and mortar um, setup, and they're gonna continue with virtual at this point in time, although the brick and mortar setups for these two studios are going away forever. And so that was, um, I wouldn't say a shock for me, although it was sad, uh, it is sad. Um, it is a reflection of, of the times. And while I am really um, excited for them that they are, forging forward in the online space. There is a bit of sadness there, just as for many of you, you may have restaurants you liked that closed or other businesses that closed. You know, Here, I wanted to just take a minute and talk about the impact of COVID right now on the yoga industry and how this is affecting you. So depending, of course, on where you are, you may be teaching uh, face-to-face with students. You may not be, you may like me, Uh, Have places that you did teach that have decided to not reopen. And I know that whatever situation you're in, you may be feeling a lot of anxiety about it and you may be feeling a bit unsure about your future in the industry. So number one, I wanted to acknowledge that and I wanted to just say if that's where you're at kind of emotionally and even on a practical level starting to, you know, just have some practical concerns about what does this mean for me as a yoga teacher? That's okay. I think it's totally understandable and I think it's the kind of thing we should talk about. So if you're having some thoughts around this topic and you want to talk through it, I'm happy to brainstorm with you and you can always DM me and I'll set up a free coaching session with you. It did come up and the reason I bring that up is because when I did a, um, a workshop last week, I did a mentorship session or a mentorship info session where I walked teachers through uh, an exploration exercise of sorts where I asked them a number of questions designed to help them start to develop, if they haven't already, goals for their yoga teaching. And this could be focused primarily on their teaching, like developing different skills, it could be focused on their business as in kind of shifting maybe the focus of what they do given what's happening with COVID. It could be really broad in terms of trying to define what's their mission, what's their overall goal as a yoga teacher, or it could be a blend of both. I think because of what's happening right now with the COVID um, situation and how it's impacting the yoga industry, it's a really good time to do this kind of work. And so what I will say, um, well, I guess I I will say this just to kind of put a button in this one is if you miss that session um, and you want the replay, I'm happy to email you the replay of the mentorship info session. I have a mentorship program and it's the kind of program where I work with teachers to develop these kinds of plans and to rework their plans as things unexpectedly come up like what we're dealing with. Now my mentorship program also works with teachers. This is all one-on-one, a very customized program to help uh, you develop your knowledge in anatomy. So it's very um, focused on that also. However, it includes that whole other arena of topics around personal development and business development. So the reason I had this workshop was to share a little bit about my program. However, I didn't just do that. I walked these teachers who attended through this really interesting, Um, exercise and we had a lot of really good questions come up. And so if you would like to take yourself through it, I'm happy to email you the replay. So just DM me on Instagram or email me karen at barebonesyoga.com and I'll send you um, the replay. Now over the weekend on Saturday, I did another session uh, with the teachers who are enrolled in my other program, I really have two, I have the mentorship program and the blueprint learning program. And the blueprint learning program is a learning program around anatomy and how to share it in understandable ways with your students. And so part of the program that I offer is also coaching calls. And it's really It's so much fun and it's so cool because teachers get on the phone. They obviously have never met each other in person. They're meeting each other online (laughs) and they're from all over. So we had teachers from the UK and we had a teacher from the US and they met each other on the call. And my agenda for the call was to go through different anatomical sequences that you could build. And I wanted to just talk about this from the perspective of why I selected this particular topic, because let's face it, if you invest in an online course to learn anatomy, and you don't have a live coaching component with it, you're just left in your house going through videos, it's not a very dynamic way to learn. That's why when I added the coaching call component to my program, I did it specifically because I wanted to show teachers higher level ways that they can integrate their knowledge of anatomy as gained from the course and the self-study they do i didn't want to just do coaching calls to repeat stuff that they were learning in the course on their own self-study process so when you think about something like developing sequences that have different anatomical focuses and having the ability to do that that is something that you can really only do with integrity and accuracy and confidence when you have the knowledge. And it's really hard to fake that kind of thing, right? So if you're gonna create a sequence and you don't have the requisite knowledge, you're just kind of throwing you know, darts at a dartboard and completely missing the mark. So this kind of thing helps us see how the anatomy knowledge we build can be applied to teaching and this is kind of a specific way to learn you know because you can learn from the approach of teach the application as a way to build the foundation and then there's the approach of teaching the foundational parts of whatever the subject is and then the application and that's what I really believe is one of the best ways if not the best ways for teachers to learn anatomy this idea of learn the key functional parts of it first, and then learn how to apply it in the context of teaching. And in this example I'm giving you, being able to apply it in the context of developing anatomy-based sequences is one example of, hey, I learned this information, and now I can use it to build these sequences. And the reason I like this kind of approach is because it provides you with a logical learning continuum. You're kind of learning building block one. You're learning building block two. Building block two depends on the stuff you learned in number one. And then when you get to three, same thing. And you're moving kind of through a continuum. And then somewhere down the line, when the building block knowledge is more ingrained in you, that's when you get to do the higher level tasks of applying it in the context of something more complicated. And in that way, it's very logical. It allows teachers to work both forwards and backwards in their logic, meaning they can reverse engineer what they are teaching back to the fundamentals, or they can simply present the application of the knowledge. However, they have it. They're not just repeating it from something somebody told them. This kind of approach can cut frustration when learning anatomy because you're starting from the building blocks first. They're much more easy to learn. They're much more kind of digestible. They give you that feeling of, I'm starting to like win here, you know, want these small wins of, yeah, I get that. Yeah, I get that. And that's so important for teachers, especially because many of them get anxious about, I don't think I can really learn anatomy. So this approach can really kind of help you start to feel like you're gaining momentum. It's faster, it's more efficient in terms of a way to learn because you're progressing to the next level once the prior knowledge is gained, which you'll need for the next level. And I'm telling you, in general, this approach is not always taken by teachers when they're kind of trying to figure out anatomy they'll take this random course online or they'll go to this workshop or this training and it's just kind of like oh now i'm going to learn about the spine well if you don't understand anatomical movements all this is going to do is probably confuse you and i remember you know even with all of the knowledge I had from school and from working in clinical settings, I would go to workshops and the teacher presenting the content would just make a lot of assumptions about what they were presenting and what the knowledge was of the people in the workshop. And so because I had a familiarity level with the information, I was able to recognize that. And I was hearing in the questions from the people Just this revelation that they don't really get the basics. So when you don't get the basics. It's kind of hard to get the higher level stuff and So that's just something to think about as you're out there, especially right now, there is a huge incentive for people to create online courses, because obviously it's a lot harder to do things in person right now. And certainly the idea of getting a bunch of people together in a workshop is definitely not going to happen, even if classes are happening on a limited size basis. So just be savvy as you're looking at things to invest your money in um, that are online. Just take a look at the course creators, find out a little bit more about them, make sure it's kind of sequentially in your learning process, the right content for you at the point where you're at right now. Okay, so in terms of just a couple of alerts, if this podcast goes live today, if my podcast producer, and I can coordinate it. Today's the 27th. Tomorrow, July 28th, I'm doing a free workshop all about Pose Breakdown. So we're going to take a bunch of postures and break them down into their anatomical pieces. So I'll be posting about that uh, today and tomorrow on my Instagram, my Facebook page. I've already posted about it a bunch. If you want to attend, it's totally free. It's tomorrow at... um, Tomorrow at one o'clock Eastern, you can just DM me for the link. So today we're gonna do yoga anatomy Q and A, and I'm calling it that simply because um, it's just kind of a mashup of a bunch of different questions that I hear every now and again from people. And I thought it would just be a fun way to touch on a bunch of different things all under the umbrella of anatomy. So, here goes. The first question is What is the difference between stretching and contracting a muscle? <laughs> and I will preface this by saying um, there are some anatomists who actually have written articles about even muscles that contracting or stretching. It's just kind of a, from a research side, some of what they've noticed at the level of muscle fibers. I'm not going to get into that level of detail. I'm going to stay kind of higher level. Um, I just wanted to throw that out there. uh, If some of you have that run across that framing in any studying you've been doing. So in order to understand the difference between stretching and contracting a muscle, we have to first have an understanding of how a muscle operates and and what a muscle is made of. And again, this is a really good example of what I was talking about before. If you don't have this kind of requisite knowledge, you can see how using cues like stretch and strengthen are really going to fall flat, both on your students and on you, because you don't understand the mechanics. And if you don't, it's really maybe not even a reflection of you. Maybe it's more a reflection of where you got your original anatomy training and how that all went down, that this kind of very basic content was not covered and I'm not blaming, I'm just saying this is a great example of building block, building block. This is a building block topic. Um, So when we think about a muscle itself, you can think of, I kind of, in my mind, you know, I, I mean, I know literally what it looks like and I've done cadaver dissection. So I literally, literally know, although I haven't looked at muscle, um, samples under a microscope in a long time. So it's been a long time since I've seen microscope views of muscles and their fibers at that level. Uh, However, this idea of think of a muscle in your mind. So I don't know if I say to you, think of a muscle, what one would come to mind? Um, How about if we, how about if we say the biceps, because that's one that everybody's familiar with. So just kind of envision kind of the belly of your bicep, just if you palpate on your upper arm, just the kind of softness there and little bit of like the tone of that muscle there. And if you envision, if you were to do dissection, cadaver dissection, it would look red and it would have some shape to it, kind of an elongated shape. And then within the muscle itself, you would have bundles of fibers. And then within those bundles of fibers, you you would eventually get down to individual fibers. And so these individual fibers, in them also, of course, are made up of different things. And on on a very high level, they are made up of fibers that get closer together and further apart at a particular junction, which is the illustration of where that chemical process is occurring. And when I say that chemical process, I'm talking about a muscle contraction. And so a very simplistic way to think about it is that when a muscle acts to create joint action, which results in your limb moving, the muscle fibers at that junction in the muscle itself are moving closer together. I guess you could kind of think of it like a gate closing, except it doesn't look like a closing. It looks like a sliding. So I think a better metaphor would be a sliding glass door. If you think of two sliding glass doors and they're sliding close together, that would be actually a pretty good metaphor for what it looks like in terms of if you do any research about muscle fiber contractions, they actually have a visual and there's that moving closer together in terms of the fibers. And then on a very simplistic level, the stretching would be when those sliding glass doors move apart, when there is separation. And as I said, it's a chemical process. There's a whole bunch that has to happen that involves uh, different chemicals and I think proteins at the level of muscle fibers. And um, so we're not going to really get into it at that level. From a kind of overall level, you can think of the concentric contraction as the muscle fibers moving closer together you can think of the eccentric contraction as the fibers moving apart, but in a controlled way to slow down the rate of concentric contraction. And then you can think of a passive lengthening as it's not like an eccentric contraction where there's still muscle tone to resist the concentric, it's more passive. So if you were kind of in a low lunge and you were just, or even half pigeon and you were just letting your body kind of succumb to the weight of gravity and just completely relaxing in half pigeon. That would be a more passive stretch versus if you were doing a low lunge, like a lizard type lunge, and you had some space between your back leg and the floor and you know generally your body and the floor, and you were using some muscular control to create a very defined shape, even though you were stretching, you were creating length in your hip flexor in the, in the straight leg, that would be more of an eccentric lengthening. So that kind of gives you an overall idea of when I'm, so let me go back to the question. Um, What's the difference between stretching and contracting? So when I'm stretching a muscle, you know, kind of the commonplace description would be, I'm creating length in the muscle itself. And at the level of what the muscle's made of, the fibers, they're moving further apart. When I am contracting a muscle, I am at the level of the muscle, the muscle itself, the biceps, I'm creating a contraction that creates limb movement at a joint. So when the biceps concentrically contracts, my elbow bends, flexes, and my forearm moves closer to my head. So that's kind of the full story there. So even though um, stretch is a term we use when we teach sometimes, we don't always say contract. We sometimes, though, say engage or activate or strengthen or squeeze. So those are all yoga cue, yoga speak type words that we could use to describe a concentric contraction. One that's creating joint action, um, moving a limb. So I think the takeaway from this one is just to be sure that, and this kind of gets to what I was saying before about the learning path, if you can't reverse engineer what you're saying to what literally should what literally is happening in the body, please don't use that cue. So if you're going to say something is stretching and you can't reverse engineer what you're saying, and by reverse engineer mean if you can't walk backwards from what you're saying to the class, to the literal anatomy that you believe is happening, you really probably, I don't want to be forceful here and like call people out. My suggestion, my gentle loving suggestion would be to before you use that cue go back and learn because one of the main ways where teachers get tripped up especially if people ask them questions and even if people don't ask them questions is just that feeling of like wishy-washiness and lack of clarity that teachers have when they say things that they really can't walk back to what's really happening so again you know it's a good opportunity to do some research That's the way I look at it. And it's a good opportunity to maybe be honest with yourself about where you have a learning gap and then take the the control and do something about that, you know, by, by investing in something that can teach you. Um, So that's, that's how that plays out difference between stretch and contract. So the next question is when I see alignment problems in poses, Is this something the student can correct or is it a problem with their muscles or bony structure? So this is a good one and this is again, more higher level stuff. So think about what we just talked about. We have lengthening contractions, we have active contractions, we have passive lengthening and those things are happening in poses. Now think about people as they're just walking around all the time. Obviously there's a lot of that stuff happening too. Think about when you're sitting at your desk, obviously there's a combination of contractions happening there. Think about if you do something, a particular movement, a lot, typing at a computer, carrying a heavy bag or a kid on the right side of your body, hunching over your computer, looking down at your phone. These are all what we kind of consider postural issues that can create certain kinds of repetitive contractions of a certain nature in certain muscles, namely the muscles that are involved in those, the doing of those shapes. So now that you, you know, have the knowledge of the prior question, now you can start to see, well, if I have someone who is doing something a lot, they may create a certain dynamic in those muscles that are doing that action. By the same token, if I have a an athlete or even not like an athlete on a really competitive level, if I have someone who's running a lot, they're going to be doing a similar motion a lot and not other motions as much. And so the reason I frame this in this way and give you these examples is because... When we look at someone on the yoga mat doing something, many times, and again, with little knowledge of anatomy, what teachers will do is they'll see that student in that pose on the mat in an isolated way. And we have to, have to, have to develop an appreciation around the idea that the expression of that posture is a reflection of every single thing that that person does in their life from a movement perspective, the good and the not so good. It's obviously a reflection of any injuries they have, and then there's a whole host of other things that have to do with their inner workings and how they show up in the world and mindset and all of that. So that's not on an anatomy level, so I'm gonna not go into that. Let's just stick with the anatomy. So here. Let's take the question again, the question of when I see an alignment problem in a pose, is it something the student can correct? So let's take the case of um, I offer people chair pose and I give them intentionally the variation of having their feet at hip width versus their feet together. And let's say I have a particular reason why I'm doing this. I want to create more steadiness. And maybe in a way, I actually want to test and see if I see some interesting alignment when people do it. So let's say I have them set their feet at hip width distance apart with no block between their thighs and I have them come in to chair and I see that their knees begin to knock in. So if their knees begin to knock in, I might think as a teacher, oh, that's wrong. Oh, that's not good alignment. I want to correct them. So I might say to them, uh, center your knees towards the front of your mat, especially if you feel like your knees are knocking in. And I might notice that some people could correct and other people could not. So this is an example of those people that didn't correct when I gave the corrective cue, are they unable to do it, quote unquote, the right way or the way I want them to do it? And the question or the answer is, you don't really know 100% for sure, which is why again, we have to just acknowledge that as yoga teachers, there's only so much we know about our students and it's very, very limited. Um, However, we can make some guesses here. So the person that doesn't self-correct upon hearing your corrective cue as long as we know they're paying attention, and they heard it, and we assume that we said it in a way that's easy for them to understand, it could be that they have some muscles that need to create that movement that are unable to. And when I say unable to, what I mean is the ones that I need to concentrically contract to do it might be too weak. And the muscles I need to eccentrically lengthen to allow those other ones to concentrically contract may be too tight. So that's one example. So in this case, if I have my knees knocking in, what I need to do is I need to center my knees more rather than have them knock in. So I need to activate muscles that are on the lateral aspect of my hip, and I need those muscles to contract to allow me to widen my knees a bit. I also need to widen my knees a bit by using the external rotators of my hip, right? I also need um, to generate some action, some concentric action in part of my quadriceps that controls the lateral aspect of my knee. Now, if those muscles are weak, it's going to be hard for me to do that. The converse is what if the muscles that draw my thighs closer together are really tight? That might mean that those muscles are gonna overtake the ones on the lateral aspect of my thigh. So you can see that nothing is working in isolation, number one. Number two, this points to a really good reason to understand what the heck muscles do number three it means that your student may not be able to self-correct even though they get what you want them to do and the other thing that it really points out to me at least is we have to kind of accept what we don't know and put it in context and then just decide to move on so we can't really know if any of the things that I just described are present in that person, unless we do muscle testing, unless we work with them one-on-one, unless we regress what we're asking them to do and see if we see the same problem in the regress variation. Um, So let's just decide, hey, they heard it, we're assuming they got it, they didn't do it, let's just move on. Because in the big picture, I would say probably the not helpful approach is to harp on it because, you think they're just not getting it. Uh, We know, and you know as a teacher, you've got probably five seconds per pose. And so you wanna use that time to um, help the student get to whatever it is, 60, 70, 80% of the expression in a safe and healthy way, and then move on to the next pose. So that's a little bit about what possibly could be happening. Um, And there is a mention in the question about bony structure issues, that could be part of it as well. Maybe there's something going on with the external rotation needed. It's not literally external rotation, it's a bit more of abduction of the hip. And there's some problem at the junction of the femur and the head of the, I'm sorry, the femur and the um, acetabulum in the pelvis maybe it's something about how their hip is particularly constructed. So that can be part of it as well. I don't want you to think it's all just about the muscles. So this whole category of reasons it could be fall under what generally in exercise science is referred to as muscle compensations. So these are types of behaviors that muscles exhibit that have to do with you know, maybe two muscles that do the same thing and one is stronger than the other. So that one becomes more dominant, That's synergistic dominance. There are different terms for what we have in the bucket of muscle compensations. Sometimes it means, you know, kind of like what I was saying before, the lateral rotators might be stronger than the internal rotator. So they just, you know, kind of Take, there, there's a weakness on the, on the uh, internal rotating side. So there's a lot of those. This is more in exercise science, not, I would say, very rarely touched on in the teaching of anatomy for yoga teachers. However, you can see <laughs> you can see how relevant it would be because it really helps explain to teachers, what oftentimes they look at and they just scratch their heads like, why is that happening? And it again is a higher level concept that is absolutely impossible to learn until you've learned from the building blocks. And in this case, in order to learn about muscle compensations, you've really got to know your muscles up and down and what their primary action is, because now you're going to start to look at, their primary action not happening, and what, somebody, what some other muscle's primary action might be doing to overtake the muscle you're examining. So that's just a little bit about that one. So let's look at question number three. Um, question number three is, how does the pelvis move? And the reason I included this one is because there are a lot of cues that teachers use that have to do with level your pelvis. Your pelvis is like a bowl. Um, You know, questions I get around things like triangle pose and locking down the sacrum and, you know, in twists, should one hip be higher than the other? Is that okay? So all these questions are in the category of having a good understanding of how the pelvis moves. So first we have to think about how is the pelvis constructed? So we've got two pelvic bones. They are individual bones joined at the front at the symphysis pubis or the pubic bone and joined in the back at the sacroiliac joint. And so because it's a joint back there, it's got the presence of the sacral bone uh, in between. So the two pelvic bones in the front um, join at the symphysis pubis the pelvic bones in the back join at the sacrum, the SI joint, and then the sacrum is fused with the coccyx, the tailbone. And so now that we have this visual, and again, you could use a bowl visual if you want, with the little like tail of the coccyx sticking down. Now that we've got this visual of these bones all fused, you can think of it like a bowl sitting on a table. And if you were to place your hands, if you were to go up to that table, And you see that big uh, bowl sitting on the table and you were to take your right hand to the right side of the bowl and your left hand to the left side of the bowl and you were to pick the bowl up and hold it in front of you you could begin to see how you could tip the bowl down so that the water's pouring out you could tip the bowl back or sideways either way and so that's why that visual of your pelvis is like a bowl is pretty accurate if not exactly accurate, because that is how the pelvis moves. Now I want to make one, um, ca- I want to add a caveat here. Remember I said the sacrum is in the back and it's, um, a, it's a joint, This the connection between the pelvis and the sacrum. So because it's a joint, remember what is a joint? A joint is where two bones connect and where movement occurs. So even though the pelvis, the SI joint doesn't look like <laughs> the elbow joint or the hip joint, it doesn't mean there isn't movement there. And so what that means is, as you're tipping the bowl forward, the sacrum, I believe I'm gonna get this right, the sacrum is tipping back. As you're tipping the bowl backward, the sacrum is tipping forward. So this refers to, there's a different term called nutation, and this refers to, nutation refers to the movement of the sacrum. And remember, it's not like the sacrum is moving independent. It's moving in coordination with the pelvis. So you can think of the pelvis as one thing. I always want you to remember it's these parts. And I also want you to remember in the back, the pelvis has the SI joint, which is the connection between the sacrum and the two pelvic bones, and that there's movement there. So when you're going into wheel pose, your sacrum is lifting up and going forward. When you're going into a forward bend, your sacrum is moving back. Okay, so now that we've covered that, and I hope I didn't confuse it, I'm gonna have to Google after. Um, I always flip those the other way, no pun intended, but I think I, think I got it. So um, having said that, all right, so now we've kind of gone through that caveat of mutation. Let's now go back to how most people think of the pel- pelvis which is tipping forward, tipping back, tipping side to si- sideways or sideways, one side or the other side. So that, if you were to say, how does the pelvis move? That is how it moves. So let's think about when you go into a forward bend. Again, we're not going to get into the mutation part. We're just going to look at the pelvis as a whole. When I do a forward fold, my pelvis is tipping anteriorly, tipping to the front, tipping front ways. When I go into bridge, my pelvis is tipping posteriorly when I have somebody in warrior one and I say center your pelvis to the front of the mat Center doesn't necessarily refer to tipping although Center pretty much implies it shouldn't be tipped front or back it should be level however it should be level and centered so, what does center refer to? So, center refers to the part of the pelvis known as the ASIS, the anterior superior iliac spine, which, if you run your finger along the edge of the bowl, it's kind of like that, except there's a high point and there's a low point. And the high point um, is what we want people to center to the front of the mat. These are typically called your hip points. So that's another pelvis orientation. Center your ASISs, center your hip points to the front. Level your pelvis. Um, Another thing, since I talked about triangle, that we can talk about here, this is a little bit more complicated. Let's just kind of dive into it. So think about when you're going into triangle pose, and if you were doing it on the right side, you would step your right foot forward, you'd have your left foot back. You'd begin to reach your left arm down. So now you're anteriorly tipping your pelvis. uh, So you can place your left hand on a block and you're gonna begin to twist. Now. If you're like me and you've been practicing for a long time you've probably definitely seen people as they twist to the right take their right hand and place it on their sacrum making an attempt to keep their pelvis level to keep both hips level however they're creating this rotation and as they're creating the rotation in their torso Their right hip is going back. Their left hip is going forward. They've anteriorly tipped their pelvis. To a certain extent, their right hip may lift higher than their left. And this is what the hand on the sacrum is trying to prevent. However, I want you to think about the movability in the posterior pelvis between the two pelvic bones and the the sacrum at the SI joint. That's a joint. Right? We don't want to lock a joint. Just like you don't want to come in a tree and hyperextend your knee, it's not a great idea to come into triangle and it's not considered hyper hyper hyperextension. It's more considered kind of it's almost like you fused your sacrum. So let's say you fused your SI joint and you tried to come into twisting triangle. You're essentially losing the ability to create a little bit of rotation at a point in the spine where you probably are going to need some movability in order to twist. It's not like you're going to be able to twist your thoracic spine and twist your lumbar spine without asking your body to have a little bit of rotation at the level of your SI joint. However, if you put your hand on your SI joint, you're going to lock that all down. So again, um, you know, using your legs for the foundation, not being overly obsessed about your right hip being higher than the left. These are things that you can use as your approach that take into account the reality of how the anatomy is set up. And the other approach of putting your hand on your sacrum to me is a reflection of an old school cue from someone who didn't understand the anatomy that just like the game of telephone just makes its way like the ripple effect through practitioners, through teachers, and it just continues to live out there as you know stuff teachers say, stuff students do, that, I don't know, I mean, doesn't always take into account really how the body is meant to move. So that's a little bit about the pelvis. Uh, there's a lot more I could say there, let's just, <laughs> for time's sake, I'll end with that one. So um, here's the next question, we have two more. When people complain about tight muscles, should I give them a bunch of poses to stretch those muscles? So this gets into a little bit of what we were talking about with the first question. What's the difference between stretch and contract? So when people have tight muscles, the first thing we need to kind of acknowledge is their experience of the muscle is that it's tight. However, they may not actually know if it's tight. It may be their interpretation of the sensation, as well as their reality of having limited range of motion in that part of their body. So I'm not saying they're lying, I'm just saying it's not known at the level of the muscle fibers. Are these muscle fibers at the level of that junction constantly firing to create a contraction, even at passive holding, or is there something else going on? And one of the typical things that in exercise science gets brought up a lot is that just because the student says the muscle is tight, it could mean the muscle is weak. And so, you know, there's again, this kind of, I don't wanna say theory, I guess you could say, it's a theory or premise that tight muscles and weak muscles oftentimes operate the same and the experience in the person can feel really similar. And so this kind of gets us to a higher theme, which is as yoga teachers, our scope of professional practice is not to treat people or to prescribe any particular approach. We're movement professionals. So once we really understand our professional scope, it helps frame how what we're going to say to people when they say things like this to us. So if someone says to me, my right hip feels really tight, my professional scope of assisting them is in the context of, I can't be entirely sure because I'm not going to do muscle testing with them. I'm not going to do, um, you know, scans on them or x-rays on them to diagnose them because that's out of my professional scope. However, what's in my professional scope as a movement professional is to have them try different things based on my knowledge of anatomy and then have them see if any of those things helps. And of course, everything that I suggest is going to be number one, a suggestion, number two, not referring to medication, and number three, well within the range of what's doable for them so that I know as they're experimenting with my suggestions, I'm not putting their body at risk. So if you have someone who says, oh, I have this feeling in my right hip every time I do pigeon and I'm on the floor and that right leg is bent, I feel some discomfort in that hip. Feels to me like tightness. So a nice place to start is to look at what the joint movement is in that pose for that person. So as they come into pigeon with their right leg down, they've got the right hip flexed, the right knee flexed. So right out of the gate, I can say, okay, so on this right side, you're using your psoas and other related muscles that flex the hip to do that. You're also stretching your gluteus maximus on the right side, and that's a muscle that is responsible for hip extension, but here it's stretching. So we have two prime candidates for concern. We could have a gluteus maximus that's trying to lengthen that's too tight. We could have a psoas that's trying to act and flex that's too tight um, or too weak. So now that I've honed in on the joint action, namely flexion and extension, I could suggest to them a number of postures that take them through both flexion and extension and have them do those postures on a repeated basis for a week, come back to my next class and report how they feel. So this really puts the student in the driver's seat. However, it gives them a recipe based on anatomy that ties back to their concern. So it's not just random, you know, and again, this is that idea of reverse engineering. You, you start with what you hear, you know, the building block knowledge, so you can work backwards. And, you know, it's just it's just more of the same theme. I mean, this theme of building blocks, that's why I call my program, um, the Blueprint Learning Program, it's a Blueprint, right? And it's, it's 100% the way that I teach teachers anatomy because I know it's grounded in a process that helps them learn it rather than random presentation of different topics. And this is why, because now here's a situation where a real-life person is asking a real-life question on their very real experience in their body, and now the teacher has to work backwards to understand or work backwards to the basics to be able to come up with what they're gonna offer the person. So that would be one approach you could take. And again, you're gonna just say the person here, here's a bunch of postures, let's work through some things, an extension, inflection, do those and then let's say the person comes back and they go you know all the ones i did for the most part that were hip extension was fine all the ones i did that required that i flex the hip that's where i really felt some resistance so that gives you more information and you can kind of go on from there it's a very iterative process uh as most of these things are (laughs) so that's uh so that's that question so um the last question is if someone tells me they have an injury what kinds of questions should I ask? So this kind of relates to the thing that I was just talking about before. So again, scope of professional practice is really important here. And, um, and also this can be the kind of thing when it happens in real life that can be very anxiety producing for teachers because they automatically may feel like, oh, this person is telling me about an injury they have So therefore now I'm on the hook to know what that injury is in order to be able to tell them what to do. And so again, I want to just reframe this for you and say, no, how about we reframe that and say, this person is sharing some information with you so that you can understand what they're coming to your class with, in terms of what they're presenting with, and It's not necessarily that you need to come up with an answer for them. However, it would be really great if you could understand more about how does that injury affect them? So in a way, it's less about them telling you about their injury. So then you could quote unquote perform for them and say all these things that you know about the injury. It's more they tell you about their injury and then you ask them, great, thanks for telling me about that. Can you share with me how this injury affects your functional movement? And then tell me how this injury affects your movement on the yoga mat. Because let's face it, friends, that's what you want to know. (laughs) That is within your scope of professional practice. In fact, that is your professional scope, yoga teacher. So. It doesn't matter to me if, I mean, obviously it does, but it doesn't matter if it's a herniated disc or a torn rotator cuff or, you know, uh, ringing in their ears or whatever. I need to know how does this affect their functional movement as they walk around during the day and their movement on the mat. I also would say the other big question that I would ask right out of the gate is, have you been cleared by your doctor to, t- to take yoga classes? and that would go first. And then your other question is the follow-up. And then as you get that information from them, that's where your you know, teaching skill set is going to come into play. You're going to hear them say, oh, well, I can't do this during the day or wake up at night or bend down to pick up the dog dish and my low back hurts. And when I've done some practices before, I've had some problem with this kind of action. So that's where all that, Functional stuff is going to come up for you, and then you're going to be fine. Then you're going to be able to make suggestions because they're going to be speaking your language. Um, even if you have an understanding of whatever the diagnosis is or condition is that they are sharing, keep in mind everybody's expression of a particular clinical condition is going to be unique to them to a certain extent. So one herniated disc at L5 is going to look different in another person um, between those two people. And a lot of things will make a difference, right? Their, their overall uh, body structure, their age, um, you know, their, their condition, the level of fitness that they have, you know, so many different things are going to um, impact the same diagnoses in different people in terms of how they present with it, with the condition so it really to a certain extent you know it's like great so now i i know what you're talking about like yeah i know what what a torn you know hamstring is like matter of fact i've had one or even if i haven't had one i understand what you're saying um however you tell me how does that affect you how is that affecting you right now both in your day-to-day movements as well as on the map so i want to just kind of wrap this part up by saying if you have questions about anatomy oh boy would i love to know what they are (laughs) so you saw this was kind of a cornucopia of different questions um, that i just came up with when i just sat down this morning and thought about what are some questions that i always hear if you've got questions please dm me tell me what your questions are and i'll include them in the next episode So we've reached the end of the podcast today. So as I said in the earlier segment there, I would love for you to leave a review. It doesn't matter to me what you say. It's just good for me to know that you're out there and and hear what you're thinking about it. Um, Don't forget, there is a workshop on the 28th, which is literally tomorrow, if you're listening to this before tomorrow. And the last thing I wanna say is, uh, how's your home practice going, right? <laughs> I know, again, things are, things are strange, different right now. If you are feeling like it's, you know, you're kind of running out of things to do at home, um, I wanna just let you know that I've got a practice portal that is not only live classes, but recorded classes. And it's 9.99 a month, it's a monthly subscription service. What I did though yesterday was, I decided all the live classes are going to be free for now. And I'm doing that as a way to encourage you to just log in and just root around in there in the membership. Take a look at some of the recorded stuff I have that's free access. Take a look at some of the other stuff that's not free access to give you an idea of what you'll get. And then take a class with me online. Um, I would love to, you know, meet you online, and especially if you're a listener here of the podcast, how fun would it be to have you in my online class, and it doesn't cost you anything. It'll get you logged in. You can take a look. And if you want to subscribe, I mean, it's it's 10 bucks a month, so it's cheap. So it's the Bare Bones Yoga Practice Portal. When you go on my website, there's a link right there. Super easy. You can just take a peek at it. And every week I'm doing live classes. Um, this week, tonight I'm doing one at 6 p.m. and tomorrow I'm doing one at 9 a.m. And all times are Eastern. And again, if you're listening and you're in another time zone from me, there's so much recorded content in there. So you're always going to be able to access uh, classes, even if you can't just logically come to the live ones. So I want to thank you so much for listening today. As always, I love doing these things. And um, I just really, really appreciate your time. So thanks for listening and stay well and healthy. And I'll see you on the next episode. Namaste. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I am your host, Karen Fabian, and I just wanna remind you, if you would like to get on the wait list for my two premier programs, the Blueprint Learning Program, and my Mentorship Program, all you need to do is visit my website, barebonesyoga.com, and the links to get on the wait list for both of these programs are right on the homepage. Thanks for listening and see you on the next episode.